Well, uh, goodness, uh, I, I uh, feel a lot of pressure to deliver in this moment uh, because that was amazing. Uh, I know we've done that song before, but that just kind of struck me in a different sort of way this morning. Uh, welcome. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's so great to see you here with us today uh, here in person. Many of you, if you're still joining us online, uh, welcome as well. We're glad that you are here. Uh, we're in the middle of a series uh, through the book of Mark uh, called Jesus, or called just the true king. Jesus is the true king. Spoiler alert. I just gave it away, right? Uh, but if you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, that's where we're going to pick up in our story today. And Mark chapter 8. Please, at Mercy Hill, uh, we want you to feel free uh, to bring like a print copy of the Bible or to use a digital copy on your phone or iPad or whatever you have. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can get one in the back of the room and we'll also put the scripture up on the screen so that you can see it. Uh, have you ever had one of those moments where a question was asked and you just knew this question might change the rest of my life? I, uh, I think about uh, my own experience. One of those moments around questions and answers uh, was when I proposed to Kristen. Now, I'm old, uh, and so this was back in the day. I wish I could tell you this amazing, Instagrammable, worthy story, uh, but we weren't on a mountaintop. Uh, there wasn't a photographer hidden somewhere. We weren't at the beach. Uh, we were actually just at my apartment, and I had tried my best to make it special. Uh, I, we were in grad school at the time, so I was uh, completely broke, and, um, and so we, uh, my roommates and I like cleared out uh, the whole apartment. We turned it into like a romantic dinner scene with like candles. We we even had like a for real tablecloth. Like we tried our very best uh, to make it really, really special. Now here's the thing. I knew Kristen was going to say yes. There was not like a doubt in my mind that she was going to say yes. We did dinner. We did dessert. Like I'm getting ready for the moment. I'm going to ask her the question. And guess what I was? Incredibly stinking nervous, Right? Because there was something about uttering the question that just seemed so big, so monumental, so life-altering, I just got really nervous. And for those of you who know me pretty well, that's, it's not often that I get nervous about saying things, right? But I was really, really nervous. I don't know how Kristen felt. Uh, I do know she said yes, which made me feel better. And then she said, can I scream? And so I figured that meant, hey, this is good, right? This is good all the way around. But often in our lives, we have those types of questions. And often when those questions are asked of us, it feels big. Maybe like this question, are you really happy? Now that could go a bunch of different directions, but the answer to that question often feels Big. Or, or, or uh, for some of you college students, uh, what would you like to declare as your major, right? Feels big. For those of us who've been around for a little bit, we're going to tell you it doesn't matter. <laughs> None of us are doing our major right now. None of us, right? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but those questions feel really big. Here's what we're going to see in this moment. Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to ask a question of his disciples a question that they've been discussing, a question that they've been talking about among themselves, a question that crowds of people have been asking, but in this moment, it feels like one of those big moments. Are you going to get it right or not? Are you going to believe it or not? So Mark chapter 8, verse 27, 
And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not or to tell no one about him. So the disciples have been with Jesus in this place called Bethesda. And they're leaving there to go to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea was renamed by this guy named Philip who wanted to please Caesar. So he named a city after Caesar. Uh, but there was already another Caesarea. And so he just decided, well, while we're naming it, why don't I put my name on it too? Right? And so that's how this city got its name, Caesarea, the one that's of Philip. That's what that means, all right? It's about 25 miles from Bethesda, so it's a long journey, especially on foot. Uh, Mike made me go running this week. We ran about uh, 1.7 miles. It felt like forever and ever and ever, right? And so, um, so this is a long journey. They're traveling about 25 miles, and on the journey, uh, this is before iPhones, right? And so on the journey, everybody isn't putting in their, like, their AirPods and like listening to their own soundtrack. Instead, guess what? They have to actually have conversations with each other. And so on this journey, Jesus asked a question of his disciples while they're walking. Hey, who do people say that I am? Now, this question is really getting after like the crowds. Jesus is saying, what's my reputation? The word out on the street, when people are talking about me, what are they saying about me? And so the disciples answer, they say, hey, John the Baptist now, we haven't seen John in a while in our story in the book of Mark, but John is Jesus' cousin. He's a preacher, a teacher. He would preach out in the wilderness. Crowds would come and hear him preach and teach. Uh, in fact, you might remember the story we did cover, which Jesus goes to John to be baptized. Jesus loves John. In Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 11, Jesus says that there's been no one born of a woman who's greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus has a high opinion of this guy, John the Baptist. At this point in the story, though, John the Baptist is dead. Uh, Herod has executed him because John has consistently called him out in public. And so John's one of those preachers. I know you guys love, some of you guys love those kind of preachers who uh, would call people out, right? And so uh, while John's doing that, he's offended Herod and has since been executed. Now, the other guy is Elijah. They say, some say you're Elijah. Now, Elijah's a prophet from the Old Testament, most famous probably for this showdown with the prophets of Baal. You may remember the story. It's like Elijah facing off against a whole like, company of prophets, and they're going to see whose God answers with fire, and Yahweh, the one true God, answers with fire, and the other, uh, Baal, this kind of false God, does not answer with fire. And so Elijah starts to make fun of them and ask them if maybe their God's in the bathroom and all sorts of kind of crazy things, but it's a pretty famous story. Now, but here's what Elijah has in common with John the Baptist, is consistently Elijah had a conflict with his king, King Ahab, because King Ahab, like Herod, was corrupt and not following the way of the Lord, and so Elijah would call him out in public as well. 
And then they say, well, some people just say you're one of the other prophets. They could be alluding all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses says, hey, uh, from among your brothers is going to arise a prophet that's going to be like me. And so maybe the people are thinking, hey, this is somebody like Moses or just in the line of these prophets. The general consensus is, though, the people think Jesus is speaking for God to people and that Jesus is speaking against the powers that be. That's the category that Jesus falls in for the people they think he's one of the prophets. So then Jesus puts the disciples on the spot. He's going to and ask them this question, this question that needs to be answered, the question that they've been debating and discussing, but the moment where the answer is going to come is going to feel monumental. He goes, all right, that's what everybody else says. What about you? You 12. Who do you say that I am? You've been with me for two and a half years. We've been traveling. You've seen me heal You've heard me preach, you've heard me teach, you've seen me interact with people. We have been together for a long time. Who do you personally, individually, who do you say that I am? Now, this question has been answered in a variety of ways throughout history. Now, some people have said that Jesus was a great teacher. Some people have said Jesus was a miracle worker. Some people have said Jesus is maybe like a sort of Superman showing up on the scene and making everything right. Some people have concluded that who Jesus is is some sort of ancient magician or a revolutionary. Some have concluded that he's just some sort of charismatic cult leader or that he's a radical philosopher. Some people have concluded that Jesus is just a myth story made up in order to inspire people. And other people have concluded that Jesus is a myth story that's been made up in order to control people. Throughout the book of Mark, Mark's been answering this question for us as we go. Have you noticed? Mark himself, if you remember all the way back when we started this series, in verse 1 of chapter 1, says his opinion. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the way Mark's answered the question. Mark's given us a snapshot, a view into what God the Father thinks of Jesus. You remember this at his baptism. God speaks audibly from heaven and says, you are my beloved son. Even in the book of Mark, the demons have weighed in on this question three times so far. What demons have said is that you are the holy one of God. Another one said, you are the son of God. Another one has said, you're Jesus, son of the most high. But in this moment, Jesus is saying, but what about you? What about you guys? What is, what's the conclusion that you've come to? Who have you decided that I am? And then Peter, it's always Peter, speaks up first for all of the disciples. I think he's the spokesman here. And he says, you are the Christ. Now, what does that word Christ means? It really just means anointed one is what it means. And so for some of you today, uh, maybe this is the first time that you've heard this or you didn't know this. When we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title about Jesus, a title that he's assumed. This title is Christ, or we might say Messiah, what it means is anointed one, and the idea, especially by the time we get to the first century, is this, the promised anointed king who's coming to set 
all things right. The Messiah. The one that the prophets, that other people associated with Jesus, the ones that the prophets talked about. The one that's coming to make all things right. To bring the kingdom here and now. An anointed one. Just like if you remember several times throughout the scriptures where future kings were anointed. That's what Peter is saying. You're the guy. You're the king to end all kings. The one that we have been expecting. You are, Peter is saying, the one that John the Baptist was talking about. You're the one that Elijah was talking about. You're the one that the rest of the Old Testament prophets were. You're the one that they were talking about. You're not one of them. You're who they were pointing forward to. You're not a teacher or a miracle worker. You're not a magician. You are something more significant than that. You are the true king. So he answers on behalf of all of the disciples. This seems to be Peter's shining moment. This is where for the past eight chapters, Mark has been driving us. Hoping that we, just like Peter, the readers of his gospel would come to the same conclusion. And then something else happens. You ever had a moment where you go from the top to the bottom really quickly? Right? The, that moment where in high school you asked the girl to prom and she said yes and then you walked away and you tripped over the cafeteria chairs and fell on your face. You ever had a moment like that? I'm not saying that happened to me, all right? I'm not saying that's a personal story, right? But you know what I'm talking about, that moment where you're at the top and then all of a sudden you're at the bottom. Verse 32, 31, I'm sorry. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, arise again. And he said this plainly. Now, Mark is pointing that out because it's the first time that Jesus has talked about his own death, his own future suffering. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, that's Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. At the top. Then all of a sudden he's getting a harsh word from Jesus. What's going on here? Well, here's what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing in verse 31 is redefining for his disciples who the Messiah actually is. What he's doing is he's giving them a job description for the Messiah. Now, at this time, there are three characters from the Old Testament that the people of God are looking forward to. For the Messiah, the true anointed king, they're looking forward to or thinking about this other character in Isaiah 53, this suffering servant, and what we talked about several weeks ago, this Daniel 7, son of man. Now, the people all think these are three different characters. There is this suffering servant that could be referring to a lot of other things. There's this son of man who's going to come, and then there's also the Messiah who's going to come and establish the kingdom. And here's what Jesus is saying in verse 31. The Messiah is the suffering servant, is the son of man. He's saying, if you want to know the job description of the true king, it's this. 
I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise again. That is who the Messiah is. That's his job description. This is important. Because how many times do we latch on to a title but not understand the meaning of the title? And Jesus is like, I'm giving you the full picture here. I want you to understand who the true king here is. This is what Jesus claims. Jesus claims the true king is a suffering king. The claim, and we're going to see this through the rest of the book of the Mark. Mark's going to start f- putting a fine point on this idea. But the way that evil is going to be defeated is not by Jesus reigning supremely over uh, this political nation of Israel and kicking the Romans out. He's saying the way that evil is going to be defeated is by his own death. That the Messiah, the true king, is coming not in a power grab, but the Messiah, the true king, is coming laying down his own life. Tim Keller says it this way. But here Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, the King, but I came not to live but to die. I'm not here to take power but to lose it. I'm not here to rule but to serve, and that's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. Now think about the radical shift from what these men were expecting to what Jesus is saying in this very moment. And think about it maybe in terms of us. What Jesus is claiming is that his death is going to lead to life, that him losing is going to ultimately lead to victory. It's kind of mind-boggling, right? Maybe another way we could say it is this. The true king establishes his reign through suffering on a cross, not by leading a coup. The true king is going to establish his reign by suffering on a cross, not by leading a coup. Shocking for Peter. Shocking for the rest of the disciples. I can't comprehend it. There's a lot of questions here, right? You can imagine the wheels are spinning. And Peter's saying, wait, wait, how can a suffering king vindicate us for our suffering? How can a, a, this true king be a defeated king? How can the person who brings us victory going to be the person who's going to lose? How can a dead king lead a revolt against the Romans? How is this even possible? He would be thinking very logically, right? There have been other people who claimed to be the Christ or the anointed one or the Messiah, but they were all dead, and that was the problem. The kingdom didn't come through them. They died instead. And so now, here is Jesus saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to die. And Peter's saying, well, how can a dead Messiah be the true Messiah? This doesn't make sense. And so he does something that is understandable, but let me just say not advisable. He pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. Now, we have to give Peter some credit. He's got some guts, right? 
I mean, think about all the things that we've seen Jesus do for the past eight chapters in the book of Mark. And this dude, calming the storm, healing people. Peter's like, hey, hey, bro, let me, let's, let's uh, talk for a second, just you and me. Um, this doesn't make any sort of sense. And so you're going to need to stop talking all crazy about your death. We just established the fact that you're the true king, and now you're like, now nah, I'm going to die? This doesn't make any sense. So Jesus is being rebuked by Peter, and then this is what Jesus responds, the way he responds in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, so he sees everyone else is listening into this conversation, says, he rebu rebuked Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Now, why does Jesus use this term, Satan, to refer to Peter? I thought they were friends, right? Well, Jesus is not saying that Peter is a worshiper of Satan, or this is not like a crazy plot twist where, like, Peter's about to, like, you know, unveil his mask. This is not Scooby-Doo. And be like, oh, Satan was Peter the whole time, right? Like, that's not what's going on here. Let's talk about who Satan is. Jesus talks about Satan several times through the Gospels, and always in this way, that he is a deceiver who is trying to manipulate people into not believing the truth about who God is, to doubt God's character, and to create confusion around God's plan. Now, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, the tactic of Satan in the garden is to what? Cause Adam and Eve to doubt God. And so what he is doing in the garden is saying, hey, are you sure God said? Did you hear that right? Or are you sure that God is for your good? See, I think God's withholding something good from you. And when God's asked you to obey these rules, these rules are really just arbitrary. And the reason that God wants you to obey these rules is because he like just gets really excited about depriving you of what's good for you. And so he's not for your good. He doesn't have good plans or designs for your life. And so in this moment, what Jesus is saying is that Peter is doing a similar thing. That Peter is doubting God's plan. He's doubting, pushing against God's goodness. He's saying, Jesus, there's no possible way that the true king could be a suffering king. There's no way that your death and resurrection could ever be for our good in any way, so you need to stop. And Jesus takes a peek and for Peter and the rest of the disciples, he gives them a really strong rebuke, possibly one of the strongest rebukes in all of Scripture, and says, no, 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 no. This is what God has planned from before the foundations of the earth. This is the way that goodness comes. This is the way that God is going to pour out his grace. This is the means by which God is going to rescue all people who trust in me. And so we're not going to have any talk derailing people from God's plan. Does this make sense? Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. We would like to think 
that we're not like this. Right? We would like to think that we know who Jesus is, and we would never be in the same situation as Peter and say, oh, no, 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 I I don't think that's the way that God is going to work this out. But what Jesus is doing here for his disciples, what he's making clear, and what he wants to make clear to you and me today, is that our expectations of who Jesus is might be off. Who we long for Jesus to be might not be accurate. And instead, who Jesus is is the sort of Messiah that we actually need him to be, whether we realize it or not. This is what Danny Aiken says. He says, the disciples are getting a picture of Jesus. A king who dies is not what they expected or wanted. It is, however, what they desperately needed. Now, here's what you and I do. We start to think that what we need is just a boost. That the way life is going to make sense for us the way we're going to experience the fullness of the kingdom and find happiness and all of our wildest dreams are all going to come true is like we're going to vote for Pedro and, um, and we are going to just need a boost. Just some good leadership. We just need somebody to kind of point us in the right direction and then we've got it from there. But the gospel reality is the reason that Jesus, the true king, comes as a suffering king is because what you and I need most is a king who lays down his life for us in our place. We don't just need, here are some rules, and if you follow the rules, you're going to be good, you're going to be fine, you're going to be okay. We don't just need someone to point us in the right direction. We don't just need better leadership. We don't just need like a self-help book to unlock all the keys of having a fulfilling life. What we actually need is not maybe what we're expecting, not maybe what we're wanting, but what we actually need is the kind of Messiah who would die for us in our place. Because at the heart of who we are, talked about this a couple weeks ago, The very center of us is broken by this thing called sin. And sin has entered our hearts. And the alienation from God that we feel, and the lack of harmony with other people that we feel, and the way that we continue to seem to tread water in this life, the answer to that is not just more external guidance. The answer is we need someone to solve the condition of our heart. And this is why Jesus came. See, what's happening when Jesus lays down his life on the cross is he is paying in full the penalty of sin that you and I deserve. And when Jesus, as he says here, is going to rise again in his resurrection, he is creating a new risen people. He is remaking who you are at the center of your life. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That that is the means by which God is going to save It is through a suffering king. Not a king 
leading a coup. So, what does this mean for us? I think two things. Taking notes. You might want to write these down. You might just want to consider them. Number one is this. The question of Jesus' identity is a question we must all answer. If Jesus claims to be the true king, the king to end all kings, the king that everyone on the face of the planet has actually been looking for, this is a pretty audacious claim. And the claim has implications for everyone. And so this is a question we all have to answer for ourselves. Who do you say Jesus is? See a teacher? See a miracle worker? See a revolutionary? See a, a, a guide? See a philosopher? Or is he the Messiah, the one chosen by God, sent from God to live on this earth, live the perfect life that you and I could never live? Is he the suffering king sent from God to die for us in our place? Is he the risen king who rose to show his victory over sin and death? The question we have to answer is, who do I say that Jesus is? Now, I don't want us to get a little goofy here because right now, culturally, we kind of have this idea that we get to be the deciders of truth. And so what I mean by asking this question is not who you say Jesus is is who he really is. That's not what we're saying. Jesus is a historical figure. Jesus taught. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the from the dead. Jesus is someone regardless of what you think about him. But your answer to this question has implications for your life, right? So let's just say uh, you and I only met one time, right? Just once. And let's just say the Bulldogs lost the day before, which hasn't happened in a very long time. Uh, and it was a late game, and I stayed up super late, and um, I watched the Bulldogs lose, and I was in a terrible mood. And you met me the next morning, and you're like, hey, did you catch the game last night? And I was like, the game, ah, those Bulldogs, right? And walked away. What would you think? Oh, Maybe Brandon really hates the Georgia Bulldogs, right? Maybe Brandon's really frustrated by the Bulldogs, right? You could reach a false conclusion just based on that one interaction because the reality is I love the Georgia Bulldogs. That's why I'm so frustrated, right? Here's what I don't want you to do about Jesus, right? The way you respond to me in that moment, if you said, oh, Brandon's not a Bulldogs fan, he hates the Georgia Bulldogs because of this like, one interaction we have around Georgia, you would reach a false conclusion. You, you understand? When it comes to Jesus, it's possible to reach a false conclusion. But we all have to answer the question. Who do I say that Jesus is? Is he someone who I'm going to listen to sometimes? Is he a teacher 
whose teachings I will take into consideration, and if it fits in my life, I will obey them? Is he a miracle worker who I will occasionally pray to when I need a miracle? Is he a political revolutionary who has recruited me to be uh, in the army of his, a soldier in his army, and I am with Jesus fighting in the political arena for Jesus? Or is he the true king who establishes reign through suffering on a cross? Is Jesus the king and Lord of me? The most historic confession of all disciples, all followers of Jesus, this real simple three-word confession, Jesus is Lord. Which means for all of us here today, believer or unbeliever, the question is, who do you say Jesus is? And for some of us who've never placed our faith or trust in Jesus, who've never said Jesus is the king, the suffering king who lived and died for me, and I'm going to trust in him and him alone. Maybe today is the day you answer that question and go, I have some expectations, and I had some wants, and I was hoping things would work out this way, but today I see clearly what I really need is a suffering king. Maybe for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this question also has a sting for us. Because we could ask it a different way. By my actions, who do I say Jesus is? By my attitude, who do I say Jesus is? Is he Lord that I've confessed with my mouth And has that confession worked its way into my heart and into my life? So the question for all of us is, who do we say Jesus is? And that has massive implications for all of us in every area of our lives. The second thing I think that's important is this. The kingdom of Jesus continues to advance through suffering. I don't want us to miss this point. Here's what Jesus is claiming. That he is going to be victorious over sin, death, and evil precisely through suffering. He's saying that's the way the kingdom comes. That's the way that it arrives. And for all of us who are believers in Jesus... We believe this too, that God works in the middle of suffering and that one of the things that God does is takes suffering and turns it for good. And you go, Brandon, how could that possibly be true? Well, maybe let me just ask you a question in return. If God wanted to demonstrate what it means to be a people who were enthralled with God's kingdom, how do you think he could do that in a compelling way? Possibly by stripping them of things from earthly kingdoms? If God wanted to show the entire world that there is a kingdom, that Jesus is the true king over hearts in this life and into the next life, 
Don't you think one of the most compelling ways he would do that is by showing the world faithful saints who endure suffering, believing that good is coming to the end? If God was going to construct a people based around Jesus, the true king, citizens of his kingdom, why would we believe that citizens of the kingdom would be beyond the king himself? That while Jesus' means to being the true king would be walking through suffering, that's not for us. God is going to do a different sort of pattern for citizens of the kingdom. Or we could conclude what Paul concludes in Philippians chapter 1. He says to the Philippians, what happened to me, his imprisonment is what he's talking about, suffering, what happened to me has served to advance the gospel. In other words, God is using what seems to be a terrible situation to produce good upon good upon good. Now, Mike's going to talk to you more next week about how this intersects with your life personally, but I don't want us to miss the big picture here. If God saves the world through a suffering king, I think it only makes sense that he's going to continue to advance the gospel, put on display his goodness and his glory and his grace through a people who at times also suffer. I don't know why you came today. I don't know how you came today. I don't know what you were carrying on the way in today. But here's the question. Who do you say Jesus is? There's lots of answers. Lots of answers. But what Mark wants us to see is this one answer. You're the true king who suffered and died for me and that Jesus is worth everything. A laying down of everything. And that includes at times for followers in Jesus of Jesus embracing suffering. That's the path of Jesus. Jesus.